Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I am very excited to have my guest on today because he is a very brave man, uh, probably also a very frustrated man since he has been trying to help people cure coronavirus, COVID, um, for many months. And um, the big pharma... Uh, who would who would be um, who would have their profits diminished by uh, what the remedy that he's been suggesting? And of course, you've been hearing about this hydroxychloroquine, but he has a, a, a combination therapy with that. Um, and it is it is incredibly frustrating to see people dying at, when he knows and he has himself been a doctor curing people in his own practice. Uh, not people who don't treat patients like Dr. Fauci, um, just spouting off about it on TV. So um, I would very much like to welcome Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. Dr. Zelenko, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, okay, well, I'd like to start off, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the treatment and what you've, you know, um, the, the details of Big Pharma and why they've been preventing this from, uh, from preventing people from getting this treatment. Um, I, let's start off just a little bit about you, you know, your, how you, uh, where you started, where you were born, where you started, what made you want to be a doctor, uh, and how you got to this point. Um, sure. I was born in the Ukraine, in uh, Kiev, 1973. At that point, it was the USSR. And my family moved to Brooklyn, New York in 1978. I was four years old. Grew up in Brooklyn, um, secular lifestyle, went to public school. Um, I got accepted to college, uh, Hofstra University. I graduated number one in, in, in the college uh, and with a degree in chemistry. I received a scholarship to go to medical school um, and went to SUNY Buffalo School of Medicine. After graduating, I um, started a family practice, family medicine residency in Long Island. And then when I graduated in 2004 from the residency, I, I moved upstate New York to, to work in a uh, uh, community of 35,000 people that live within a square mile of each other. During this process, I had a kind of a spiritual awakening and I uh, reconnected with my roots, Jewish roots, and became a uh, observant uh, Jew. I married, and uh, I have eight children, thank God. Um, over the last three years, I've been fighting uh, cancer. I had, uh, now I have recurrent and metastatic pulmonary artery sarcoma, and uh, I only have one lung, and... Um, I'm on, I had radiation and I'm on chemo. This has all happened in the last six months to recurrence. Um, wow. while, mm -hmm. I was, while I was dealing with the, the COVID outbreak. So that's kind of my brief bio. Wow. <laughs> um, it must be, uh, do you think maybe the stress of what you've been having to fight against to try to help people uh, contributed to the recurrence? Um, I don't know. I, uh, I was working 20-hour days um, for four months straight. Um, I was vilified in the media and by my colleagues. Uh, I got death threats. So it was a pretty huh. stressful time. Um, I lost my job and, and because of this, I had to move uh, to a different location. Uh, but, you know, all that pales in comparison with, with what the world is experiencing, uh, which is uh, you're a psychiatrist. You should probably 
realize to what degree people live with uh, psychological uh, uh, trauma, anxiety, and um, is really prevalent everywhere. Um, I've given interviews and lectures all over the world, um, and the, co- the common denominator is that everyone is living on eggshells, uh, not sure how to uh, go on from this point. And um, what, what I've been able to discover uh, provides an antidote to that. In, in a sense, we have a treatment. It's very effective. Uh, there's a protocol, there's a, an approach to dealing with COVID-19 that makes it no different in concept than influenza. There's no need to live in such fear or societal uh, shutdown or social isolation and all these things. So um, that's a message that has resonated with people all over the world. Just yesterday, for example, I uh, gave an interview to one of the biggest outlets, media outlets in Brazil. Millions of people were listening to it including the president, uh, President Bolsonaro, same thing in France. So I, I, I do know that uh, there is a tremendous amount of uh, interest and I would say even hope that uh, we're going to get out of this in some uh, reasonable way. But there's a lot of obstacles that we need to overcome. Yes. Well, let's start with um, where, how, how did you, um, now you talk in your in your paper that you, presumably this is what you delivered to the um, U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security, the paper that I read of yours. Right. You testified so, um, before Congress. I helped craft that hearing. Um, I, I've been working together with Senator Ron Johnson uh, from Wisconsin. He's the head of Homeland Security for months. We're probably in weekly contact. Um, and there were three witnesses there. Uh, there was another hearing today, by the way, but this was uh, a hearing a few weeks ago. Um, they had three witnesses there, um, and all of which, if you listen, they acknowledged that their work was based on my work. And I essentially was the first uh-huh. in, the, in the world to recommend outpatient intervention in high-risk patients uh, with, uh, with tremendous success. I published a paper together with two uh, researchers from Germany who are in the level of Nobel laureates, I would say. Um, one is uh, Dr. Roland Derwand and Dr. Martin Schultz. And what they did was they, they helped me bring my data uh, to the world. And we published in an internationally renowned peer-reviewed journal uh, a paper that demonstrates but if you follow the Zelenko protocol, that's, that's the name, uh, you can have an 84% reduction in hospitalization and death. So okay, we're approaching... Well, well, I was just going to say, before we kind of get into more of those sorts of details, I would like to, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know how you came up with the Zelenko protocol. Like, how did you first, since you were the first one at least in our country, um, how did how did it come to be that you started noticing? I mean, it, you know, did you just, um, uh, was it sort of a gut instinctual feeling and you tried it out on some patients and then you saw that it was working? How did it come to be? Well, uh, glory to God, I have to say. I believe that uh, the, the idea was given to me as a gift to humanity, but uh-huh. so I don't credit for it, but the, the way it evolved was I was essentially the first in the country having to deal with a mass outbreak in a concentrated area in the outpatient setting. So, for example, in my community in the first and second week of March, we had thousands of patients get sick at the same time. And huh. usually, usually uh, at my office would see 50 patients a day, we were seeing over two, 250 and what, wow. what happened was outpatient uh, radiology services, outpatient blood work were closed. The hospitals were near capacity, and uh, half my staff was sick. So I, I, and all we were doing at that time was building more respirators and telling patients, take Tylenol, and when you get sick, go to the hospital, and we'll intubate you and then you'll have an 80% chance of dying. And I mean that because 
uh, in March and in April in Mount Sinai Hospital, NYU, Maimonides Hospital, they had death rates over 80% in their ICUs. So it was mm-hmm. a death trap. So what was I offering my patients? Go home and, and wait to die? So that's not my style, and I, I believe in early intervention. Uh, I, I believe that uh, that's a well-accepted concept in medicine and in life. If someone has a fire in their kitchen, they don't wait till the whole house goes on fire to put it out. Put it out while it's small. Right. Uh, if someone right. has cancer, we don't wait for it to be metastatic. We treat it as soon as we can. Uh, and same thing, if you look at the CDC recommendations for influenza, it tells you to start antiviral drugs within 48 hours because that's when it works. So this mm-hmm. is a well-established in medicine, except when it comes to COVID-19, we're told don't do anything, let the fire get out of control, let the infection uh, overcome the person until they have lung damage, then go to the hospital and then we'll try to save you. Absolute moronic and stupid and counterintuitive. So I realized that we need something. And by the way, these patients are more than patients to me. They're like family. I've been the old style family doc, country doctor for almost two decades with these people. They're, they're like family to me. So I had skin in the game. I didn't, I didn't like to see these people that I care about die. So, you know, there's two choices. If there's no solution, you can give up, lift your hands up, surrender, or you can find a solution. So I I started looking around research. Uh, I was looking on uh, YouTube. There's a a lecture series called MedCram. And if you look at episode 34, lecture 34, that lecture saved the world. Because in that lecture, um, the doctor there explained the theoretical mechanism of zinc and hydroxychloroquine, which I, I heard in the past, but I forgot about. And I said, oh, my God, this, this is a good idea. So then I looked around what other countries were doing. And in South Korea, uh, they were using hydroxychloroquine and zinc, but in hospitalized patients with moderate results. Then I uh, looked at France, Dr. Didier Raoul, in Marseille, France, uh, was using hydroxychloroquine, um, yeah, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in hospitalized patients with some moderate success. So I said to myself, well, I don't want my patients to end up in the hospital, so let me intervene early, and let me combine the two approaches, the Far East approach together with the French approach. The common denominator was hydroxychloroquine, which is, by the way, a, a drug mm-hmm. that I used for, for decades. It's been around 65 years. It's used for malaria, malaria prophylaxis, and rheumatological diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. It's given to pregnant women, to children, to nursing mothers. It's considered one of the safest drugs on the planet. So I felt very comfortable using it. Azithromycin is one of the most common antibiotics in the world. And zinc is an element, a mineral, which is ubiquitous. So I had no problem deploying these drugs um, in the early stages and seeing what would happen. What did I have uh-huh. to lose? And all of a right. sudden, the second I started using these drugs, patients stopped dying. They stopped going to the hospital. And their uh, respiratory symptoms uh, improved within 6 to 12 hours. I said, oh, my God, this, this, this is unbelievable. And after a week or two, yeah. I got the same results over and over. I realized what I had discovered. And I'll give you an analogy. Imagine a frontline soldier, a simple private, stumbles across an enemy map. And that map uh, maps out where all the enemy is. So he realizes Mm -hmm. that this could save the war. So he has to deliver the map to a five-star general. So how does a simple doctor with no political connections uh, get this information to the most powerful people in the world? Well, it's called social media. And I asked my son, my 17-year-old son, to help me make a YouTube video, which I never made before. And the video was addressed to the President of the United States, asking for help and describing what I found. Sixteen hours later, I get a phone call from Mark Meadows, the President's Chief of Staff. And he asks me what's going on. I told him he was very interested. I had his contact information. And he asked me to keep him updated, which I did. Then a week later, 
I get a phone call from Dr. Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the FDA. And he, uh, he obviously was referred to me by Mark Meadows. And he asked what I was doing. And he connected me with the NIH, um, which uh, at that point I hit a dead end because they didn't know what to do with outpatient real-world evidence. Um, the way research is done in this country, it's almost monopolized by um, academic institutions and the pharmaceutical industry. That's the point of mm-hmm. my submission to the Senate, which is to uh, develop a different model of how medical truth is discovered and shared, uh, which we can discuss later. But anyway, so then Rudy Giuliani reached out to me, and I did a few podcasts with him, and that changed everything because those podcasts went viral. Millions of people saw them, and since then, mm. nothing, it's just gotten more intense. I've, I've given uh, consultation to seven different countries. I have heads of state calling me. Uh, for treatment advice, so for themselves actually. So that's how it evolved. Um, I published data on it. That's a very interesting, I I must give you, that's very creative, a very interesting um, trajectory, you know, doing a a YouTube. And, I mean, did you have or did your son have a large YouTube following? How did it happen to get to the president? Um, That's a... Whoever's going to write the book should find out. But uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it was the first time I made a video, and my son, I guess, knew how to do it, but he doesn't have a following. Uh, he's a yeshiva boy. He doesn't spend too much time on the Internet. But he knew how to do it. So um, that's the story. And this is, it evolved um, into something really great. Okay, well, actually, now th- yes. Wait, 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 now for the now, because we do need to take, <laughs> we need to take a break at this point. So, um, so I think this is a good place to stop, and we will come back to where we left off after the break. My guest is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. It's the Zelenko Protocol that is curing um, people from uh, coronavirus, from COVID, and could cure a lot more if it was more readily available, if Big Pharma wasn't stopping it. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your uh, psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't write yourself off. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where my guest today is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, the uh, creator, developer of the Zelenko Protocol, um, a combination of hydroxychloroquine and an antibiotic and zinc. Um, he'll tell you more about that. But, um, we, you know, Dr. Zelenko made this presentation to the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security because, as he said, or as he, and as he wrote, you know, this has become a national security issue because um, with all of us being, with, with what's been happening to the country, with so many people getting sick, with the economy being downturned, with people getting sick not only from COVID but also psychologically devastated, um, we are in a much weakened position and our enemies have not gone away like the terrorists and so on. And um, so it is a matter of national security. And he, in this uh, speech that he made and paper that he wrote, he explains the uh, the reason why things are the way they are. Like you would think that it would be everybody would jump at um, this cure that he found. And yes, thank goodness there are a lot of people jumping at it, but not not big pharma and not um, the FDA or the CDC uh, or NIH. You know the 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 organizations that one would have hoped would care more about helping people keep well or get well, stay well, than, um, than their own pocketbook. And that is not the case. So why don't you explain all of that to us? So there are four root causes to the resistance of uh, effective and outpatient uh, treatment of COVID. One is politics, two is profit. Uh, three is arrogance, and four is fear. And I'll, I'll go into each one separately, but the political aspect of this is clear that it, the, since the President of the United States came out in support of the use of hydroxychloroquine, then it became vilified uh, for political reasons not to give the President a win, um, even though it's cost the lives of tens of thousands of Americans, unnecessarily. Um, so the liberal left did everything in its power to suppress uh, life-saving information and life-saving medication, access to life-saving medication, um, which is, in my opinion, akin to mass murder and crimes against humanity. That's the mm -hmm. political... The pharmaceutical industry uh, had a lot to lose, has a lot to lose. This treatment that I'm advocating costs $20, the whole course of treatment. It's made up of generic mm -hmm. off-patent medications that are oral and safe and cheap. Now, if I, according to my data at least, uh, if I reduce the need for hospitalization by 84%, I've reduced the market share for drugs like remdesivir by 84%. And a course of remdesivir costs $3,200. Also, it makes mm -hmm. the vaccine moot because the majority of people, 99.97% um, of people, actually, will recover from COVID-19 without any intervention. The, the, the key is to intervene in the high-risk population. And when I say high-risk population, that means these patients have a 5 to 10% chance of dying. That's exactly what, out of the 300,000 dead Americans, the majority of them were uh, elderly or had com comorbidities of medical problems. Young, healthy people just do fine with the virus. So you don't need to vaccinate the majority of the population. All you need to do is prophylax or, and or treat the high-risk population. Now, if we do have a safe vaccine that's effective, I'm not against it in, in if people want to take it, that's their choice, especially the elderly in nursing homes. Why not? However, the concern is that this vaccine has been pushed through in record time. It's new technology. It's a mRNA vaccine, which uh, very few, we don't have much experience with. Um, it takes around 20 million dose administrations of vaccine to get a full uh, side effect profile um, of this of any vaccine, 
and we're up to, I think, around 100,000 administrations. So there's a lot of um, uncertainty, and, and that's fine. I understand the need to push through. Uh, this is wartime. This is World War Three. 200 countries are fighting the mm-hmm. same invisible enemy. So I get it. But at the same time, it should be, we should be given the free choice, the right to try um, every type of modality that may make a difference. So, and there's a plethora of, of absolute evidence that's overwhelming. You're, you're an ep- epidemiologist. I spoke to Dr. Harvey Reich, MD, PhD from the Yale School of Medicine. He's, he's an epidemiologist. And he said that there's a one in 17 billion chance that hydroxychloroquine does not make a positive benefit. That's based on, on the data that he's compiled. Um, there's a Dr. Peter McCullough. He's the vice chair of medicine in Baylor University and cardiologist. Uh, and he is in complete support and is actually doing the same thing as I am. He's a Dr. George Faree, the Harvard MD. Um, he has treated thousands of patients with this protocol. And we have a group of 200 doctors. By the way, I bring those three doctors up because they're the ones that actually testified in the Senate, and it's a matter of public record um, what I'm saying. So that could be easily corroborated. But there, we have hundreds of doctors top doctors from top universities, all now advocating the use of early intervention in high-risk patients. That's the key here. And, and when I say early mm-hmm. intervention, I mean the first five days of onset of symptoms. You don't wait mm-hmm. until the infection goes from the sinuses and back of the throat and enters the lungs. When it enters the lungs... At that point, that's when the catastrophic injury happens. You can develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. You can develop blood clots, and that's why most people die. So the key is to get rid of this infection before it descends into the lower airway. And that can only happen if you treat it within the first five days. So mm-hmm. and this is being done now by hundreds of physicians across multiple continents, and anyone who denies uh, either has nefarious motives or is blind or stupid, so or all three, actually. So I would say that anyone who is stopping early intervention is, should be brought to the Hague, in a sense, for crimes against humanity and for genocide against the elderly, and the infirm. And I want to tell you, I learned that politics is a blood sport. I didn't realize how literally that is true. Because because of the politics, the blood of the innocent, elderly, and sick is flowing around the world on the streets. And, and it's completely uh-huh. preventable. So uh-huh. there, needs to be uh-huh. a, there needs to be a revolution here. This is, we, this is, we're living through tyranny. Could you imagine a doctor-patient relationship? The doctor makes a recommendation, the patient likes it, he wants to take it, and all of a sudden Governor Cuomo comes in the middle and says, no, we know better. How would you define that? It's called tyranny. You know, does yeah. any FDA approved a doctor has the right to use it in an off-label capacity. It's, it's my legal right as a physician that I can choose to use off-label drugs that are FDA approved. So who is getting in the way and who would want to get in the way of a doctor-patient relationship? Tyrants. That's true. People that want to um, control and manipulate our lives. And then we have to analyze their their motives or why they want to do this. New York, for example, that's where I practice, the nursing home population got slaughtered. In some cases, more than 50% death rates in the nursing homes. These are our parents and grandparents. Why? Because the government is sending infected people into nursing homes, into the most vulnerable population. He should be tried for murder. He he should be tried for murder. And um, it just gets worse and worse. He got an Emmy for his, uh, you know, way he did his 
um, uh, his press conferences and so on about the coronavirus. I mean, it's just people are... (laughs) The people are so blind. Yes, all of these um, nursing home patients who were killed because of what he did, what Cuomo did. Um, you know, also, what I have been long suspecting uh, uh, that, well, I am not a fan of Dr. Fauci. I've been talking about him since the pandemic began as the voice and face of gloom and doom and how stress. Uh, decreases, weakens the immune system, and so he has caused more people to be vulnerable to uh, COVID than um, than he is, you know, thinks that he saved. Um, and when I was reading your description, you know, what you said at the Senate um, committee, uh, I, I and how you described the interworkings and the finance, I knew. I, I had been saying not only about the voice of gloom and doom, but also about, you know, he had been recommending from the very, really early on, he was talking about a vaccine and, oh, when we have the vaccine. And um, and so when I was reading what you wrote, you know, your speech um, and about the FDA and the CDC and the NIH, and of course, um, he has, uh, he is the, the head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease at NIH. Clearly, there is a, I have been saying, and I believe, and I think you, you explained it, not that you mentioned Fauci necessarily in regard to what I'm just going to say, but um, that he stands to, not only is he getting his more than 15 minutes, but he stands to make a significant amount of money from, um, from not letting hydroxychloroquine be the treatment, number one, and number two, from promoting a vaccine or vaccines. Can you speak to that? There's an underlying fundamental problem uh, in the model that we use when it comes to public health, which is that the pharmaceutical industry uh, supports and finances half of the budgets of the CDC, NIH, and the FDA. You would think that there should be a firewall between the pharmaceutical industry so that they don't influence inappropriately um, the search for truth. But do you think that, uh, let's say the FDA, do you think the FDA is going to be impartial when half of, half of its budget is coming from the pharmaceutical industry and its uh, directors and, and, and deputies after their term is over in the FDA, FDA for example, are going to go work for the pharmaceutical industry? So obviously, these people are in bed with those that have the most to benefit. The problem is that at times they suppress life-saving, available, cheap treatments because it may affect or will affect their profit margins. So what I've learned over the last nine months is that you cannot trust the information that's coming out from these organizations. For example, one month ago, the NIH came out with a statement that they do not recommend treatment of COVID-19 unless the patient becomes hypoxic, meaning low oxygen, and in the hospital. These bastards are recommending, even nine months into this, the mass murder of people so that the hospital admission rates remain high so that the, their masters, see, these are whores. These are prostitutes that have sold their souls to so many pimps, they don't even know who owns them anymore. And uh-huh. these monsters are sacrificing human life for their own profits. So my recommendation is the following. There should be a firewall a bulletproof uh, structure, an iron curtain between the pharmaceutical industry and government agencies that evaluate uh, medical medications and and therapeutics and treatments. And also there should be a moratorium that anyone who works with the FDA or NIH or CDC should not be working for the pharmaceutical industry for 10 years or whatever. In other words, take away the incentive for corruption. 
That's one. Yes. Number two. Yes, it's a con- it's a conflict of interest. Yes. Number two, we need to unlock the power of open source human collaboration. And what I mean by that is that having the academic institutions and the pharmaceutical industry have a monopoly on medical research is part of the problem. We need to allow for primary care doctors who are on the front lines, who generate real-world data and evidence, to be able to collaborate in an open-source way to be able to generate statistically significant um, data in real time. And that could be used in parallel with the traditional methods of research. So, for example, in this case, I, I found an 84% reduction in hospitalization and death um, being on the front lines. Now, can you imagine if we... Dr. Zelenko, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt you again. We do need to take another break. Um, this is all, of course, incredibly important and interesting, so we will be right back and get right back to it. Uh, and my guest, again, is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. He is uh, the, the creator of the Zelenko Protocol for COVID. Uh, we're going to be talking more about that when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carroll wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarroll.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarroll.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Vladimir Zelenko. He's a physician, board-certified physician in New York. He has been called um, worldwide. People have been calling on him after he created his protocol, um, the Zelenko protocol, and to prevent um, and treat uh, um, COVID-19. And um, I, I, I think that, you know, it, there was such a, there's such confusion and such, and as you were saying earlier, so much of it is political, um, you know, that if you want to get hydroxychloroquine, then chloroquine, then people think, oh, well, you know, that's Trump. You believe in don't. I mean, I just had a conversation two days ago with a woman who is very smart and very, you know, sophisticated. And I mean, you know, I'm talking about how, I mean, she generally knows what's going on in the world. Um, and when we were talking about that, she had just gotten taken a, a test. Um, a COVID test. She hadn't gotten the results back yet. And I said to her, 
Well, be sure if you turn out to be positive, and of course I hope that doesn't happen, but if it does, remember to take hydroxychloroquine. And she turned to me and she said, oh, no, that's just because, you know, you like Trump. I'm not, I wouldn't take that. That, that doesn't make, it's, 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 uh, it's a hoax or it's garbage or it's, you know, words to that effect. And I'm thinking, this is someone who I like, and I really wouldn't want her to get sick, and I certainly would want her to get well if she was positive and got sick. Um, and this is what someone who, you know, <laughs> is smart um, says. So it's, it's just really, um, it's really sad on so many ways that so many things are, are getting in the way of people getting this treatment, including states, um, some states, not some states taking away or threatening to take away doctors' licenses if they prescribe hydroxychloroquine, some states making the patient um, get a note saying what the doctor prescribed it for, and if it's not for malaria, um, you know, if it's for COVID, then they don't want to fill the prescription. I mean, it is ridiculous when pharmacists or governors or mayors or Twitter <laughs> and Facebook can determine you know, since when did they go to medical school? So why don't you tell us about um, how, if someone is listening to this now, um, tell them how the medicines work, how they could get the medicines if, in fact, they do, unfortunately, get a COVID-positive result. We're dealing with a propaganda war. Um, there's so much false information and academic fraud perpetrated on, on humanity that... Um, even very intelligent people, many physicians I know, are petrified, and many patients are petrified in, in taking these medications because of the hysteria and, and the fear induced by, by propaganda. So um, I think we need to uh, explain how these medications work um, and fight prop false propaganda, the false narrative, with truth. And since I understand your listeners are intelligent people, I'm going to speak uh, at a pretty high level of uh, information so that people understand that this is not magic, but this, there's a basic science there, uh, theory behind what we're doing. So it's well known that zinc kills virus. And the way it does that, it inhibits an enzyme called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, or something called replicase. This enzyme is important because viruses, the way they work, they're parasites. They need to hijack the machinery of a person's cell in order to reproduce. They cannot reproduce on their own. So when a virus enters the person's cell, it, it takes over the use of this enzyme, which then it makes copies of itself. And when there's sufficient amount of virus, the cell dies and the virus begins to spread to other cells. So the way to stop that is to, if you inhibit one of the ways, is to inhibit this enzyme. And it turns out that zinc is a very effective in throwing a, literally a monkey wrench into the functioning of this enzyme. So you're going to say, great, why not just use zinc? Well, there's a biochemical reason. Zinc, when you dissolve it in a liquid, in solution, it, it's a positive cation, which means it has charge. Now, the cell membrane, which is the way you get into a cell, is lipophilic, which it's like oil. And so it's like oil and water don't mix. So the zinc cannot get into the cell where the virus is. So that's a problem. It's like having bullets without a gun to shoot them. So, and that's a very good analogy, a gun and a bullet, because you need the synergy of both in order to have a functioning unit. If I just give you a gun and no bullets, you're going to tell me, the gun is broken. No, the gun is not broken. You just, you just don't have enough um, enough material. And if I just give you the bullets without a gun, that's also not going to work. It's only the synergy, the combination of the two. So if I have a way to get zinc inside the cell, um, that becomes very powerful. And that's called a zinc ionophore. Um, and hydroxychloroquine turns out to be a zinc ionophore. All hydroxychloroquine does in this context it's opened the door and allows zinc to go into the cell. Now, it's important, and what I'm about to tell you is going to save many, many people's lives. If hydroxychloroquine is not available, there are other zinc ionophores, there are other compounds that do the same thing. Perhaps not as well, but still uh, better than nothing. 
and they are natural substances available over the counter without a prescription. The first is something called quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. It's a derivative of plants. It has the same property of hydroxychloroquine in terms of bringing zinc into the cell. Another one is called Mm -hmm. GCG, which is a green tea extract. Both of these are available over the counter. So if if you cannot, if you live in a tyrannical state where access to Mm life-saving medication is not uh, is not there, then better than nothing, go to the uh, Amazon or your local pharmacy and buy these over-the-counter supplements. You still need zinc, obviously. And I would tell you to take it in a prophylactic way. Um, I'll ask you to post my, uh, Dr. Carroll, to post my um, Twitter ID because my pinned tweet mm-hmm. has everything I'm saying in writing. And that's important because... Uh, words are reading, but something written will have a uh, will yes. last. So yes. I want mm-hmm. I want people to be able to reference, uh, and it'll save their life. So, and the antibiotic component that is simple. The main one of the main problems with COVID nineteen lung damage is that it leads to secondary bacterial pneumonias, which and eventually kill the person. So if I can give an antibiotic, it's like a bulletproof vest. It's protective. So the, the three-drug mm-hmm. combination is, again, it's, it's, uh, it's the gun and bullet. It's the zinc being delivered into the cell with the zinc ionophore, in this case hydroxychloroquine, and the antibiotic azithromycin um, as a protective element so that the person doesn't develop bacterial pneumonias. But the most important thing is that you, we identify the high-risk patients that have a 5 to 10% chance of dying and treat them immediately, the sooner the better. That's when you have the better outcomes. Now, in, since I developed my protocol, there have been other therapeutic agents that have come up that are also effective, and I've incorporated them um, into my patient care. And this is the key. of Every patient needs to be treated individually. Uh, custom tailored to that patient's needs. You can't use a cookie-cutter approach. So sometimes I use uh, steroids, dexamethasone, for example. Other times uh, I may use blood thinners to prevent blood clots, depending on the patient presentation. I may use ivermectin, which is an anti-parasitic agent that seems to work against COVID. Uh, I may use inhaled didesomide, which is an oral uh, inhaled nebulizer steroid. So my point is that there are many ways to get rid of this infection, but the common denominator of all the treatment protocols is risk stratification, identify high-risk patients, and treat them as soon as possible. Um, And that's what I consider the Zelenko protocol. It's, again, early intervention in high-risk patients with various different drugs. And and they're so effective uh, that this will end the pandemic. If the truth is, if we spread the truth. That's why I do these interviews, because I, I feel that the public deserves to, to know what's really going on. I, and I've, listen, I've uh, risked everything for it, um, you know, literally my life. And uh, I think it's worth it, because uh, if we could, it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, you save the world. So can you imagine uh, what's, how many people we could save and benefit if uh, this knowledge is spread uh, to everyone. So th- that's my, yeah. my, my, my hope, my prayer, that um, the truth comes out and that the people that are trying to obstruct the truth are brought to justice. Well, now we only have two minutes left. So what is, so here you did the two meetings now, right, at the uh, Senate Committee on Homeland Security. Um, what what is next? Is it basically the same thing? Just spreading this message as much as you can through the media, through your web, through the um, your twi- Twitter uh, feed, um, every way you can get it out. Is that what you're planning to do? Uh, yes, but there's four elements to treating any uh, infection. One is to prevent spread, and I think we're doing a reasonable job at that with social distancing, masks, although I'm not a big supporter of masks, but still, there is emphasis on stopping the spread. Number two, which has zero uh, 
resources devoted to it is early pre-hospital intervention. Um, three is inpatient hospital care, which I think we got much better at. And number four is vaccination. Uh, and these are all the four pillars of dealing with a pandemic. And all are important. Uh, the key is to be able to use every modality, every resource available to minimize the death. And at this point, early pre-hospital intervention has been sacrificed for, in order to uh, increase inpatient care and also to push the vaccine. So even with the vaccine, let's assume the thought experiment that the vaccine is actually going to work. Even with the vaccine, um, people are still going to get sick. Look at the influenza vaccine. We still get 40, 50 million, my baby just came in, 40, 50 million people uh, getting influenza, even with the antiviral therapeutics and the vaccine. So people are still going to get sick, and we still need an intervention to keep them out of the hospital. That's what I'm advocating for. Yes, yes, and of course it makes a lot of sense. And I I think, you know, in addition to helping people um, not die from uh, COVID, uh, I think you're also being helpful in in exposing the um, the links, the um, oh, how intimate the uh, big pharma is with these organizations that are supposed to be um, okaying different medications, the FDA, the CDC, and the NIH. You know that is really important. I don't think people understand all of the just how closely all of those things are linked and what that means. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zelenko. Um, for sharing your your wisdom, your experience, you know, it's a very different story when um, you can talk as someone who actually is on the front line treating people rather than someone who has some lofty post uh, and hasn't treated a patient since uh, since the turn of the century. So thank you so much, and thank you all thank for you, listening. Dr. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.